This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. And this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. My guest today is Kelly McDaniel. Kelly is a licensed counselor, author, mother, and women's advocate. Kelly's latest book is called Mother Hunger, How Adult Daughters Can Understand and Heal from Lost Nurturance, Protection, and Guidance. In it, she explores the complexity of mother-daughter relationships and seeks to normalize the experience of yearning for maternal love. Today, we talk about how mother hunger manifests and how this type of longing impacts our sense of self-beginning in infancy. We talk about how mother hunger presents itself in other types of relationships. Kelly says that what we did to earn our mother's love is what we end up duplicating in friendships, romantic partnerships, and sometimes work. And she shares a hopeful path forward for anyone who might recognize themselves in today's conversation. Okay, let's get to my chat with Kelly McDaniel. Kelly, it's so wonderful to have you today and to be getting into this this topic of of mother hunger, which is something I've I've been thinking a lot about. And I I feel like over the past year and a half or so have been able to make a lot more space, you know, in my life to talk about it. And, you know, before we dive all the way in, I'm, I'd love to hear about your beginning, you know, what was your upbringing like and what was your relationship to your own mother and, and kind of what brought you here? Sure. I love talking about mother hunger, but I have found that it's not a topic that just everyone is comfortable with. I think, 
Anytime as daughters, we talk about our mother, all kinds of things can come up for us. And it comes up for me personally as well. You know, we may want to be a good daughter. We don't want to say anything unkind. And sometimes the truth, people can't hear it. They do hear it as unkind if it's anything less than she was amazing. As far as my own upbringing, a lot of times I don't spend a great amount of time talking about that, partly because this issue of mother hunger is so big and touches so many women that I've been concerned that if I talk about me and my mother, it would somehow take the focus off the topic and instead switch the focus onto me. So I don't go into lots of details, partly for that reason. Also because my mother is still alive and she was so young when she had me and I think did what she could do given the misguidance at the time from the culture at large. And I think it's very difficult for a mother to go back and review ways that she let down any of her children. I think all mothers love the best they can and with what they have, at least most do. I think it'd be great to talk about how you came up with the term mother hunger and what it unlocked for you. I first came up with this term accidentally. I was writing my first book called Ready to Heal, and it was written for women who were healing and recovering from love addiction. And what I was finding in my practice is every single woman that I worked with would eventually kind of get down to the root of heartache, heartbreak. And it always come back to, I want my mom. I heard it over and over and over. And it didn't matter how old this client was or whether or not her mother was still alive. She still wanted her. And the search for her, the search for her mother's love is what kept bringing her into addictive type romantic relationships and complicated female friendships. So I first wrote this term in 2008 when I published that book and I did it with a great deal of anxiety because nobody was talking about this kind of thing at all. And the book was being circulated pretty quickly in professional circles and not, I I had a number of colleagues that were just wondering, what are you talking about? Attachment theory wasn't really being discussed much. And we like to think that mothers are perfect and that it couldn't have anything to do with adult trouble with relationships. But after mentioning it in that book, my whole practice exploded because the term resonated for so many adult women. And I didn't intend to write this next book, Mother Hunger, but it was demanding to be written. And the women who knew I was writing it, who were in my practice, really wanted me to talk about food as well. So the most primitive things we learn from our mother come in lessons from how we're fed and how we're held, both tied to food and then to love. So that book hadn't been written yet. So I'm glad it's here. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, 
from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And when you talked about the idea of mother hunger connecting to how we're held and, and to food, what does it mean to have mother hunger? Is it, is it something that speaks to a deficiency or is it something that speaks to never having enough? Well, yes, exactly. That's where the word hunger seems to resonate. It does speak to a desire to be fed in certain ways. And I have found that mother hunger is so primitive. Mother hunger emerges from lack of maternal care, but specific kinds of care. First being nurturing, the next being protecting. So the the things we need the most as vulnerable babies and toddlers, we need mostly to be held, touched, looked at with delight, responded to, attuned with, and we need to feel safe. These are biological needs. They're wired in for our survival. We don't have a choice about these needs. Having these needs doesn't mean there's anything wrong with us. This is because we're little mammals. This is what we need. Unfortunately, many mothers are given misguidance about what nurturing is or even what safety is. So for example, a sleep training expert or a pediatrician might say it's time and it's okay to sleep train your child. But what the science is showing us is that's the sleep training is really an unfortunate term because one does not need to be trained to go to sleep. Sleep is biological, right? I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm sure at some point I will be having a whole nother conversation about this. And I, I personally, in all of my years as a doula was completely against the idea of sleep training. I think that sleep hygiene <laughs> is really the goal hygiene for both the mother, the parents and mm-hmm. for the baby and sleep hygiene can look a number of different ways. Mm-hmm. And I, I do feel that sleep training is kind of the beginning of the disconnect in the sense mm-hmm. of, you know, letting the baby cry it out, especially mm-hmm. under the age of one, when mm-hmm. there is just a very natural and understandable need for close contact and for a lot of, you know, connection. Yes. I'll, I'll let you keep going. Cause I, I could talk about talk about that all day. Well, I'm so glad because it's, it's so delightful to talk with someone who's very close and centered and educated about this. I mean, think about it. The home, the first environment is our mother's body. We are growing, listening to her heartbeat, her voice. We smell her. We know what she smells like. We're born already wired to stay close to her. We want to be near her heartbeat. We want to be near her voice. We're already in love 
really. And when separation happens too often and too soon, it really does create our first heartbreak. In attachment theory language, it's the beginning of insecure attachment. Secure attachment relies on safety and proximity. And when those things are compromised for whatever reason, and they're often compromised because of outside circumstances, right? Not for lack of love and not for lack of effort, but interventions that happen. So when those things are compromised, we as little ones can't make sense of that. We can't make sense of why our needs aren't being met. So we just grow in a an insecure attachment. We don't really feel bonded and trust very well. And that carries with us into adulthood unless there's a healthy intervention. So you say that your book should be read from a daughter's perspective and not the mother's. Yes. Can you say more about that? Yes. I wrote this not as a parenting manual. I'm not trying to give parenting advice in this book. My agenda in this book was to help adult women make sense of mood problems, relationship problems, food problems, and reduce the shame. The essence of mother hunger is twofold. It's shame and it's frozen grief. Shame because when we're little, little creatures growing, and this all happens before the age of three, we adore and worship, and for a long time, way beyond three, we adore our mothers. We, we can't see her as anything less than perfect. So if something that we need is not being met, our need for her time, our need for her touch, or our need to be fed when we're hungry, not on a schedule, or our need to be safe, protect me from my peers or my siblings, or maybe from the mother's partner, when we need protection and it doesn't happen, when we miss out on these things, we don't really think anything's wrong with our mother. We think something's wrong with us. And so, so many women are growing up with this sense of something's wrong with me. I'm broken or unlovable. And that just really translates to shame. And we can become immobilized in that shame and wonder why we have trouble identifying our dreams in life, trusting people, finding joy, being able to play, these things get really difficult with shame. And then when we have no place to talk about it, because either there's not been a name for it, or we now we know maybe we have mother hunger, but who do we talk to? There's not a support group, let's say. The grief gets frozen in the body until there is adequate support. So that also complicates learning about this issue, understanding this issue, and healing from this issue. So in an effort to understand a little bit more, how does mother hunger present itself in, say, a romantic relationship or at work or female friendships? I'd mm-hmm. love to kind of hear a little bit of how you've seen it set mm-hmm. up. Mother hunger, first of all, generally until someone hears the term, goes under the radar. No, we don't know we have it. We just know we're hungry for something. And we go about trying to find a way to fill that hunger. What that looks like for a lot of the women that would come to see me is looking for a romantic partner to provide nurturing, safety, and also be inspiring and admirable. 
which is the guidance piece. That's the third thing we look for from our mothers. We want nurturing, we want protection, and we want her guidance. We want to admire her. We want to be inspired by her. So when any of these things are missing, we're going to go look for them elsewhere. We may look for them and find them actually in some places. We may work for someone who inspires us. And so that kind of meets the guidance piece. But typically women who come to see me are struggling. They're not finding a way to fill these needs. They don't even know they have them. They don't realize they're looking at their girlfriends or their partners, romantic partners, to fill these needs. They don't know they have them. These needs are so young and generally preverbal that we're behaving in ways that we learned as a child to try to get these needs met. So that's very diverse depending on what we each did to earn our mother's love. But what we end up doing is duplicating that with friendships in romantic partnerships and sometimes at work. So it's really unique, but I did see a whole lot of spectrum challenges around eating, finding a way to eat that's about nutrition, health, and fuel rather than filling this void. And same with love and sex, you know, rare to see healthy expressions of love and sex that could be playful and creative. They became instead somewhat compulsive, manipulative, automatic as a way to either earn love, earn the feeling of being loved, or have someone touch us without really saying, I need to be touched. Instead, we could be seductive or we can flirt and hope to be touched in a sexual way and hope that that meets that need. It doesn't, but it can take a long time before somebody realizes that everything I'm trying is not working. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. And when you say everything that they're trying is not working, it's Mm -hmm. because there is this kind of lack of identification that the core wound, the core need has to do with not having that maternal need met. Precisely. Precisely. We don't know we have the need. We didn't realize it was there. We don't know we have that heartbreak. So every time we try to fix it with our adult selves and we're not doing what the little person inside us needs, we're heartbroken again we're frustrated again, then we feel more shame, then we feel more grief. And that complicates and grows more intense each decade that goes by without stopping, pausing and realizing there's a little person inside me, a little girl, a little baby girl, a little toddler who wants her mom. And now it's my job as the adult to find ways to have healthy nurturing care have safety around me and to find wise guidance. That makes me want to ask you about something you wrote about called pathological hope, because Mm -hmm. as I hear you talk about all of these elements, you know, I think to myself, what would be something that would sabotage the awareness maybe as you gain it, you're like, Oh, I, I do feel like there, there were deficiencies are, deficiencies around how I've been mothered. Mm -hmm. How does pathological hope kind of get in the way of starting to do any type of healing work around that awareness of that lack of nurturing? 
Well, talk about a topic that we could just go on and on with. <laughs> this is a big one. And I will thank you for asking, first of all, because I think it's a core issue that complicates the healing and it starts very young. So when we're little, mother nature protects us. Our biology is meant to keep us alive and keep us feeling safe. So instead of know that the mother we have, for whatever reason, she's too busy or she's sick, or maybe she dies prematurely, or she herself is not safe, for whatever reason, she can't give us what we need, we'll create a fantasy mother who is giving us what we need. This is about survival. This is biology. This is our use of imagination and creativity. And that capacity to create a fantasy mother also grows with us. And at different stages in life, we may wake up to a more realistic picture of our mother, but that happens at different stages and sometimes not at all. So what we do when we have this fantasy that our mother is going to somehow meet our needs is we continue going to her for those needs to be met. And the chances are if she couldn't meet them when it was age appropriate, she may not be able to meet them on down the life span. So we may go looking for mothering, not knowing we're looking for nurturing, not knowing we're looking for protection, not knowing we're looking for guidance. We get disappointed again, but then we do it again. This may happen daily. It could happen weekly. It may only happen once a year at a holiday, but we keep getting disappointed and feeling maybe some anger or resentment or just sadness. And we will try all kinds of psychological gymnastics to fix ourselves to get what we need before realizing it's not going to happen. And what I call pathological hope is the continually going back to the mother that we have, hoping for a different reaction, hoping for a different mom, hoping we will finally have the mom we want, not necessarily the one that we have. Making sense? That makes absolute sense. And I think the ability to embrace the concept of pathological hope is so important. I definitely was moved by that because, you know, depending on how you were raised, you know, if you're raised in a religious household, you know, we could replace the term pathological hope with faith, faith that it's mm -hmm. going to be different the mm -hmm. next time when, you know, it's, it, it, it really is not. Mm -hmm. And then that leads me to want to touch in about disenfranchised grief because you've talked about grief a little bit in this conversation, but what what is disenfranchised grief? It's something that you also build into in the book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm so glad you brought that up. Another topic that's vast. And, and before I jump into disenfranchised grief, I want to add one more thing about pathological hope that I think could be helpful for anyone listening the nature of an addictive relationship, and the reason I wrote that first book, is we keep going back to a partner hoping for a different outcome, even though perhaps this particular partner has shown us time and time again that either he or she is not emotionally available, not going to come through for us. We keep hoping that that will change. That's, the, that's what happens in an addictive relationship. Keep going back, doing it again, doing it again, getting caught in a cycle. And I think pathological hope is a big piece of that cycle. And I think it starts so young, way before that relationship. But disenfranchised grief is grief that has 
no cultural awareness or permission to feel, no place to go. For example, let's say, as in the case of, and I use this as an example because I think so many of us as women have had some experience with a cancer diagnosis of some sort. And when we first hear the word cancer, it can be really terrifying. And yet at the same time, because there's so much awareness, we know a friend or we know a support group or we know a mother or we know a spouse. So we know someone who has struggled with cancer. So we know where to go to talk with people about what we can anticipate the treatment might be like, what we can anticipate the healing might look like. We can talk about our hair loss. We can talk about our fears and that helps us grieve. Grief has to have a place where we can talk about it in order to start the process of unfolding. So when grief is disenfranchised, there's nowhere to go to talk about it. People don't want to hear about it. People might think you're a bad person for even thinking that you missed out on something from your mother. The grief of what you lost of that first heartbreak freezes in the body, causes all kinds of problems from physical pain to autoimmune problems and concentration problems. I, I could go on and on, but the basis of this disenfranchised grief is that it freezes the process. So by the time someone realizes, first of all, I guess I have mother hunger, and then they get ready to start healing. Most women are advanced in, I mean, over 40 for sure, but generally 50s, 60s, and 70s, because it takes a long time to find a place, to find permission, to kind of come out of pathological hope. I find that women that start healing sooner did so because their mother passed away so young that they came face to face with grief faster. That's really interesting to know that it is a little bit of a later in mm -hmm. life unlock. I think, you know, for me, I'm, I'm 35 and I feel like definitely over the past, in my 30s has been the time to really start to to, to reckon with, you know, the ways that I was undernourished again, you know, my mother is still alive. And so very much in a similar position to you in the sense of just, you know, I think saying less feels more comfortable for me, but what I do feel a lot of ease around is, is admitting that there is, there is an, a, a lack and and slowly making my way into what that healing process you know can mm -hmm. look like and mm -hmm. and that makes me want to ask you what is what is that healing trajectory what's the first mm -hmm. step so someone who's listening to this and who's I, I mean I think people probably listening to this are familiar with the idea of like the mother wound but I think the word hunger is just so much more applicable because it it has a lot to do with drive um, and an intensity when you're hungry you'll do anything to be full versus a wound a wound is something that makes you feel like you need to take care of yourself or it's you know it, it can get gangrenous it doesn't have the intensity that i think a lot of women actually carry with them someone with mother hunger can be extremely successful there's all of these ways that we kind of reappropriate lack into fuel and so i'm really curious you know, like I said, what are the first steps you take if this resonates with you? Mm -hmm. That's so well said, Erica. I love the way you just framed that so beautifully and differentiated mother hunger from mother wound. I love that. So 
Yes, hunger is an innate need. So there's a lot of energy there. We're going to get this need met one way or the other, or we're going to die trying, right? The first step though, is the name. The minute the body hears a name that feels truthful or feels resonant, there's a recognition almost in the gut, in the belly. You can just almost like, ah, oh, that, that's it. That's me. And then as soon as the body has that name, the body does what it's designed to do, which is heal. We are designed for health. We get derailed easily. Our culture is not designed for our health, especially as women, which is why mother hunger is so intergenerational because women in patriarchy have suffered. And that suffering, sadly, transfers to the next generation and the next generation and keeps the cycle of mother hunger pretty intact. So the most powerful beginning to step out of that cycle that we've inherited from our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers and the suffering that they endured and therefore having only what they had to give, right, is naming what happened and understanding that it's a product of the cultural distaste for women and the cultural lack of empowering mothers, supporting mothers, the cultural lack of understanding of the intense needs we have as infants for bonding. So as soon as we have a name, we know it's not that we're broken. We know it's not our fault. And it really wasn't our mother's fault. The body starts to on its own heal. And then depending on the degree of mother hunger, so back to the three pillars, nurturance, protection, and guidance, based on what, what one actually missed, the healing is very different. Let's say perhaps you had a mother, and I'm using the general you right now. If your mother was really playful, loved having a baby and a toddler, she was affectionate and she had time and she was resourced, then nurturing may not be something you struggle with. Perhaps then, though, at some point, life changed for her and she was not safe, either in her home or perhaps in her work situation. And she felt a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. Let's say maybe there was a national trauma, such as a pandemic or 9-11 that compromised your mother's feelings of safety. That's going to transfer as well. So as an adult, you may find you're anxious a lot, you don't feel safe very easily, that's going to be where you focus your healing. You won't need to focus so much on the nurturing piece. So the healing is really about finding some way to identify which piece you lost and then finding a way now as an adult to meet that for the younger person inside you and meet it in a healthy way. So I've given lots of suggestions in the book for how to repair lack of nurturing how to repair lack of protection, or how to prepare lack of guidance. If you missed all three, I've created a separate category for that called third degree mother hunger. And that's a separate chapter because it is such a profound attachment injury that most of us who endured anything like that are going to have significant mood disorders and problems trying to find help with that. And a lot of shame comes with that. And I wrote that chapter to take the shame off stigmatizing diagnoses like borderline personality disorder, things like that. 
I'm just so, I'm so moved by this. I think there's so much power in the specificity of this exploration, right? I think, you know, when we're trying to do any type of trauma repair or, or healing, it, it can be hard sometimes to look at those initial original attachment figures and I think your book really provides a, a soft on-ramp to begin that process. And I think one last thing I'd love to ask you is how can we create a culture that that helps to extinguish mother hunger? I know you didn't write the book as a parenting book, but I think for anybody who is currently raising a child or is thinking about having one or actually isn't wanting to have children as a result of just a fear of replicating the experience that they had you know how do we create a a culture that is that is more protective mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. i said it can extinguish some of this mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well you just asked the question, which was my motivation for writing this book, I am hoping for a paradigm shift. We have to change our poor guidance and poor education around <clears throat> how important those first three years are. And I've, we need to be speaking with pediatricians, OBGYNs. I've had people tell me this book ought to be in a high school health class. I think so. I think if women have more information about what was actually required to be a mother, it helps make a more informed decision. And most of us don't even know what mothering is. If you look it up in the dictionary, it says to care for someone as a mother would. That's really not helpful. So we don't have good guidance out there. And I'm hoping this book can become the maternal guidance that we need as women. I've written a note in the back of the book to new mothers, kind of here's if I were your mother, here's what I would want you to know as you become a mother. Because a lot of us can't go to our mother when we become a mom. That's when we need her so much again. But if we don't want to do what she did, we're out there on our own trying to find a way. And there's not, there are not a lot of good maps. I'm just so grateful to have had this conversation with you today and to also be having it on the other side of kind of a big step in my own healing. One thing I've heard, Erica, and just for your listeners is for, for women who have third degree mother hunger missed out on all three, sometimes reading this book alone can be too difficult. You hear your mother's voice or you even hear your own voice and both cause such a reaction that you can't concentrate or get through it. And I've heard from those women that the audiobook really helps because they hear my voice instead of their mother's and they can get through the material that way. That's incredibly helpful. That's, and again, as many portals as we can have, mm -hmm. I think is so key. Well said. Well said. To unlock the work. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to my conversation with Kelly McDaniel. Her book, Mother Hunger, is one that I'll return to again and again. I hope you'll pick up a copy if it resonates. Thanks again for tuning in. 
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.